Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and we have a really interesting and different show for you today. I'm really excited about it. We have a really special guest, Clint Burns. Clint is a nurse by training and is also a liver transplant recipient. He is uh, employed here at Hopkins. He's the program coordinator for organ and tissue donation. He does some incredible work. And we're going to talk today about a variety of things, Clint's own experience, as well as the organ donation process and what all of you out there as providers can do uh, to be part of it, to be prepared for it, and to really maximize the chances for people who need organs to get them in an uh, ethical and uh, acceptable way for everyone to feel good about it. So, Clint, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Walpa. So uh, let me start by asking you to uh, tell us, you know, you, I gave them your title. Tell us exactly what that means, what you do. And then I want, um, if, you're, if you're willing, to for, ask you to tell us a little about your own story. Oh, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm always willing to tell my story, and I'm so appreciative of being here today. So as the, my background is around nine years as an ICU nurse, and for 10 years I've been the program coordinator for organ and tissue donation at Johns Hopkins and for the Living Legacy Foundation, which is Maryland's organ procurement organization. So my role is to be the liaison between those two institutions to oversee the donation process, all the way from the time someone's admitted with a traumatic head injury, all the way through the recovery of the organs. As soon as the organs are recovered, the transplant side takes over, and and my job is, is finished at that point. So whether it be education, I am trained to clinically manage donors because of my background. I can speak to families about donation, but Living Legacy has people specific for those roles. But most of my job is education, working with physicians and intensivists like Dr. Walpole to make sure that the process, everyone's educated on the front end, so the process goes well in real time. And ultimately, our goal is that the family's getting great care. Great. Fantastic. All right. So, Clint, let me ask you, you've had a transplant, a liver transplant uh, for quite some time now. Um, tell me uh, the story or, or share with us, if you sure. will, um, kind of your story and then how that led you to get into healthcare. So I was born with a rare liver disease, benign reoccurrent cholestasis, and ultimately had, you know, all those things liver disease causes. Puritis, I was jaundice, uh, anorexic. I had multiple bouts of pancreatitis. I was on TPN for six to nine months at a time. Um, I was worked up for a liver transplant in the mid 80s around 1985 and they turned me down at that time they wanted to try a few other things so I went to the National Institute of Health the Mayo Clinic they did some experimental things with medication and charcoal phoresis ultimately came back to Hopkins was put on plasma phoresis once a week for about five years. It was sort of a dialysis for my liver at that time. It kept my bile salts at a low enough level where I wasn't getting pancreatitis and I was able to be an outpatient. So ultimately, my liver was cirrhotic and I was terminally ill and I was put on liver transplant wait list in 1993. I was on the wait list for one year and I received a liver transplant in 1994 here at Johns Hopkins Hospital. 
I'm now married. I um, have a beautiful wife, Jessie. I have four children. I have five-year-old twins, and I have a 17- and 19-year-old as well. It's busy. Impressive. I'm impressed that you're still standing. It's, it's a busy time in my house. A lot of testosterone there, my wife would say. <laughs> and, um, and I went to nursing school about nine months after I received my transplant. And then my first job was actually at Johns Hopkins, where I was a patient on the med surge floor for a year. And then I went to the ICU, where I was a patient here at Johns Hopkins as well. My oldest son is named actually Jared Maley Burns after Warren Maley, Dr. Maley, that did my transplant. So just being able to um, come back to an institution and as a transplant recipient, work with the nurses and physicians who took care of me has been really um, coming full circle, and it's, it's meant a lot to me and also the people I've worked with. As so well. did you – thank you for sharing that, and, and that's really great. I'm so glad that 24 years out you're still doing as well as you are. Did you – uh, no, before or ever have thoughts before your transplant that you were interested in going into becoming a healthcare provider, or did it really come about after your transplant? I think I'm one of those people that life had, had led me there. So the, all those experiences I had, the great care I received from nursing physicians while I was sick at Hopkins and all these hospitals, I think it was just kind of a a very you know, this is where life has led me. And going to nursing school seemed like a very natural transition. So it, it was something I didn't really even think about. Mm-hmm. So going, I th- always wanted to do something to help people. And that's what um, I ended up doing. That's great. So when you were first uh, getting involved in healthcare uh, as a nurse, and as you did that for many years, in what ways did your care and the way you saw your patients, was it influenced by having been a patient yourself? Yeah, I think, uh, of course, that is primarily, um, I think, being able to relate to patients and their experiences. And also, I think, being able to know what, um, as a provider, what providers go through taking care of really difficult patients. I mean, my symptoms were incurable, the jaundice, the paritis, but nobody ever gave up on me. So having both sides of that process and that perspective has really formed and shaped my, um, you know, my ability to relate to patients and providers at the same time and hopefully bring us all together. And I think what shaped my philosophy or, or, you know, how I feel about donation in general is meeting my donor family. 16 years after my transplant, I got to sit down with Linda, who is the wife of uh, Paul Gale. And Paul was actually a retired physician who died of a stroke at a hospital here in Maryland, Peninsula Regional. And Living Legacy ultimately discussed his, you know, was in the uh, a position of helping others through organ donation. And his wife, Linda, had one decision to make. That was a yes or no. And she said yes back in 1994 to donation. And 24 hours later, I received Paul's liver. And that was 24 years ago. And I sat down with Linda 16 years after my transplant, and I said, I don't know how to say thank you. And she looked at me and said, Clint, as amazing as this gift is for you, imagine what it means for me now to have met you. My husband, Paul, only not lives on through you. He now lives on through your children. So really knowing what the gift of donation means to donor families helped me put all the pieces together. We know what donation and transplant means to a recipient. You're taking somebody who's terminally ill and curing them 100% overnight. There's nothing like this in medicine. How, I mean, if you think of anything in medicine, how can we cure somebody who's terminally ill overnight? It just doesn't happen. 
But really, the miracle of this process is what it means to our donor families. During the worst day of their lives, what an honor it is to be able to work as a team together and offer donation as one of those end-of-life options. And I just knowing that I have the ability to pull the staff together to make that happen is 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 humbling. Yeah, Clint, I think that's such a key point. And I remember kind of thinking about this the first time through a discussion with you and, and it kind of being this revelation. I had never thought of it that way before. And so I just want to emphasize the point you just made, which is that, like you said, we all think about donation as being a gift to the recipient. And I think we just don't, we, we, unless we run into someone like you who talks about it with us, we don't think of it as a potential gift not to the donor. We, in fact, sometimes I think think of it as an imposition uh, to ask a family to donate uh, or to sign to donate for their loved one. Uh, and, and yet, it makes so much sense when you think about it and when you hear the way you talk about it is that this is an opportunity for the loved one who is dying already to be able to live on through the gift of giving to other people and the lives that the lives that they save it's an opportunity for them to profoundly influence the lives of other people um, and then it goes on and on through generations as you as you said you have four kids and they'll have kids and all of this is possible because of the donation that this man made yeah, that's exactly right. We do um, find staff that are hesitant. They feel like it's an, an additional burden. It's a, it's a conversation that's going to cause them um, additional stress and, and working. And, of course, as staff, being very neutral, all families should be able to make that decision on their loved one's behalf. We should offer the information, make sure it's informed, and our goal is never a yes or no to donation. It's that the family is giving all the information, it's well-informed, and they are speaking on their loved one's behalf. And that's all we can ask of ourselves. But you are right. As soon as someone or if a family knows that what their loved ones would have wanted or they were designated, whatever that may be, you see an amazing transformation in a family almost immediately. So... You'll see a family, and there's nothing else. I mean, we're in a position where someone's brain dead, declared dead, or they're withdrawing support. And it's not because of donation. It's independent of donation. And sometimes I think we mix that up in our brain a little bit. We may feel like there's a conflict of interest, or we may feel like um, the the family feels as though we were thinking about donation at, at certain times. But I've never come across a family when we are speaking about donation that that is something is a concern when we as a staff are communicating and offer donation at the appropriate time yeah. and that's the key so really what you said is seeing that transition of being able that there's a silver lining there's some hope in this that somebody might be helped that their loved one's going to live on in someone else and the things we do for our donor families, being on donor walls and memorials and raising flags, and as institutions and physicians and Hopkins or whatever house was an institution celebrating that, I can't tell you how much that means to families. Yeah, that's fantastic. So tell me, there's those conversations, uh, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how those conversations with families happen here and how is that true everywhere or does it depend state to state or institution to institution? So 
unfortunately, there's not, in, uh, as in a lot of things in medicine, not everything is consistent uh, across the board. So everything I'm talking about here and the rationale why we do what we do truly is focused on over 30 and 40 years of thinking about this. And it has been a progression. What is the what is the best way we can offer donation to this family? And how it works is when somebody comes into the hospital and there's traumatic brain injury, it's pretty much uniform, Glasgow Coma Scale 3 to 5, and traumatic head injury, your OPO, your organ procurement organization is called in whatever state you're in, and they come on site if the patient doesn't rule out for donation. And it's really important to note that donation is really extremely rare. So out if some our triggers are GCS three to five, if the family is discussing goals of care or end of life, or if they bring up donation, that's when the OPO is called. Last year, we had 350 calls for potential organ donors, and 310 rolled out on the initial call. We only considered 40 people as potential donors in 2017. And only 21 people went on to be actual donors. And we have 1,000 deaths a year at Johns Hopkins. So out of 1,000 deaths, we have 21 organ donors. So it's the most important part of this process, if I was to talk to providers, is the call to the OPO. There's two criteria to be a donor. You have to be on a ventilator in an ICU or you can't donate. If you extubate a patient and cause after the fact, we missed an opportunity to speak to that family about donation or offer that opportunity. So the call, and I spent a lot of time on this, is 99% of this process. And not just the call, but an early call. So if you as a provider put a note in, um, the families may decide to, uh, decided to allow natural death. We're going to withdraw support. You start the palliative care meds. You're at the bedside and about to extubate. It's so late in the process, we are now have to stop the process, maybe do a phone approach. It's very disjointed, and ultimately we're doing harm to the family. But if, you, if the family wants to withdraw support in three days and you call me at the time they decide, it's a very relaxed process. We can come on site, start that process, communicate as a team, and the family will benefit from that. And I think this is really key, and even though we do it, commonly here, I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding. I'm sure there are other places that calling, and so what I what I push for is if a family, like you said, is, is thinking about it, if those discussions are happening, if I even think they might happen, I, I will call you guys, not because you're going, I want you to come in and say to the family, hey, we need to talk about organ donation today, right? But because you and the team will start looking at the chart, you'll start deciding whether this patient is even an, a, a potential donor, um, and then you'll think about ways and timing to approach the family and how to do it in a supportive way. So making that call early, there's no downside. I think some people think if we call Living Legacy early, that somehow that's going to, you know, before we've even talked to the family about the prognosis, you know, someone's going to go in and say, hey, how about organ donation, right? So it's not how it works. And that's the kind of the irony of this is you're calling us really so we don't talk to the family. And uh, as of the data I gave you, 350 calls and we only had 29 donation conversations. So 90% of the time we're, we're ruling that patient out. We're awarded the opportunity to evaluate if they're able to to uh, even be eligible to donate. And I will say there's a lot of questions about should we tell the family we're calling Living Legacy Foundation? And the answer is no. If you as a provider, there's three reasons why you don't 
let a family know that living legacy is being called. Conflict of interest is a huge one. So you as the provider are going in and you're, I don't know, doing ECMO or you're, you know, you're giving blood. You're doing all these things to save a life. And by the way, we're going to call Living Legacy Foundation. We're now perpetuating those myths and misconceptions. And the other reason is you may be offering someone the opportunity of donation and likely are when there is no opportunity for it. So I'll just give you a quick little case study. We were in the PICU. We had a 12-year-old who had a head bleed. And she was a GCS of six, and family was coming to terms. It was a late referral, meaning they're talking about end of life, and we weren't called. So ultimately, the over two days, the patient rebled, became a Glasgow Coma Scale 3. The fellow walked in the room, and the family um, had decided ultimately to allow a natural death. They made that compassionate decision. The fellow, well-meaning, and she was aware of the process, said, well, before we um, withdraw support, we're going to call Living Legacy so you can talk about organ donation. Most people assume that family would say no. We're not saying don't bring up donation because they're going to say no. Most people will say yes. And in that case, the mom said, you mean she could be an organ donor? And the fellow, well-meaning, said, um, possibly, let's call Living Legacy. So the fellow called and said, I accidentally bought up donation. We came on site and did our evaluation. She had an astrocytoma behind the eye. It ruled her out for organ, eye, and tissue donation. The mom had gone to the waiting room, called everybody in her family, and said she was going to be a donor. She has now decided that her daughter is going to, is going to go on to help others. So we've now done harm to the family. We went behind the fellow, sat down, and we're sorry. This patient is not eligible. Right. The mom was understanding, but it was um, a conversation that shouldn't have happened. So that's just an example of if you bring up donation to a family, you are by default offering it. Right. The other reason we don't bring up donation to a family early in the process or ask staff not to is we want to make sure it's an informed decision. Dr. Walpole, if I asked you five questions about donation right now, I promise you, you'll probably get four of those wrong. Um, one question. If there's, we had a 22-year-old in our CCU, a heroin OD. Heroin has changed the face of donation. One in four donors last year were drug ODs. And the physician bought up donation. And the mom said her best friend needs a liver transplant. If I said yes to donation, would her best friend bump everyone else on the list? And could she get that liver? And the physician said, no, that's not how it works. But indeed it is. It's called directed donation. And it's something the patient, it was misinformation given. The family's going to have three or four questions. Can I have an open casket funeral? How much does this cost? How long is it going to take? Can I meet the recipients? You're now in the position of being the subject matter expert. And it's going to be an uninformed decision. And when you bring up donation, what does a family do? They leave the bedside, they hit the Google, and they talk to their other family members about donation. And now we're in the position of five or six other people who are giving misinformation. And I promise you, it will be a myth or misconception when that, even if it's a yes, when that um, decision is made. Right. So that's so important that this is a really very intricate, very specialized discussion. And so it shouldn't, uh, for a variety of reasons that you've touched on, be happening between the clinician and the patient. That's why there's an organ procurement organization. Living Legacy here may have other names in other states. Absolutely. And I think the the whole take-home message here is just like when you're putting in a central line, you use a line cart, and it's consistent. Everything we do is about consistency. If And it's also about data. I mean, if we're doing it differently all the time, we can't collect that data and know, are we doing, is what we're doing working? 
is the family getting good, great end-of-life care? If we're consistent and we need to change things and we do surveys with our family, they don't feel well um, cared for, then we kind of know where we need to change. But ultimately, if we're not consistent, consistency brings a comfort to this process. If we come on site, so back up, if you guys refer in an early way, we come on site and they evaluate and the patient doesn't rule out for donation, then we sit down with you, Dr. Walpaw, the social worker. We sit down with the resident. Everybody involved in the care of that patient sits down and we make a plan. It's called the effective request process. It's, this process is so simple, and people make so much of it, and we build this up to be in our mind. But it's literally coming on site, evaluating, huddling, making a plan, and following it. And that, that's, that's it. Yeah. If the family dynamics change and, they, and something deviates, then we make another plan. Now, I'm going to – for providers – this is an attending-driven process. If I come on the unit and Dr. Walpole looks at me and walks away, then the resident, the fellow, and everybody involved in that process is going to be uncomfortable with me. If I walk on site and Dr. Walpole says, Clint, I'm glad you're here. We'll be done rounds in a half hour, and we'll huddle at 12 o'clock. He has now given permission. You have now given permission to everybody for everybody to be okay with me. Yeah. And that is... It's everything in this process. Yep. It, it brings a, a really an easiness to this process where where we sometimes don't find. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. Um, let me ask you what what do you recommend to providers if a patient independently brings up the question with them? So says you're in the room, you're doing your physical exam, and the the patient's family says, you know, uh, I know that that you know it's not looking good. Can they be an organ donor? Which happens all the time, especially in pediatrics. So when a family brings up donation, you acknowledge and defer. So you as a provider, that's an amazing thing to bring up at this time. Even if the patient's already been referred and we deferred, you still call us. What we do is you acknowledge and say we have a team that can come in and talk to you about that. Yep. And then we come on site, we sit down and do a huddle, even if we've already deferred or if we do defer when we come on site, and we hold them as a donor in spirit. So as an OPO, Living Legacy and other organ procurement organizations across the country, we acknowledge and celebrate the decision to want to help others, not the actual physical gift of donation. Mm, so great. literally, if someone rolls out, they are awarded the exact same care as if they're a physical donor. We'll raise a donor flag, which we have here at the hospital. Um, they're going to um, Living Legacy does so much for our donor families, and they're all given those same resources. That's great. I didn't know about that, Clint, but that's really, uh, I think, a great uh, procedure to go with so that the families feel that honor, even if the, ultimately, for whatever reason, they can't, mm -hmm. their loved one can't donate. Um, but that's key, right? So if a family brings it up with a provider to say, you know, what a wonderful thing to think about, well, I'll bring in the team uh, to talk about that with you. That's it. Great. Tell me a couple words about, uh, so there's, you know, people may hear the term uh, donation after cardiac death and donation after brain death. Um, what's the difference and do, do, are both uh, legitimate ways to donate organs? Yep. So there's um, living donation actually is done through the hospital. It's a hospital-based thing, and organ procurement organizations um, do not oversee living donation. When we're talking about um, donations that the organ procurement organization oversees, and there's 58 organ procurement organizations around the um, around the um, 
country. Um, California has three. New York has two or three. And um, Maryland actually has one and is covered by a little bit by Washington. So we oversee the organ donation after brain death and organ donation after cardiac death process. Organ donation after brain death, someone comes in, um, who are organ donors, gunshot wounds to the head, hangings, drowning, strokes, long downtimes from heroin and um, uh, drug ODs, some congenital things um, in our pediatric and, um, population. Those are our donors. If they have a traumatic enough brain injury and we're working through the brain death process and we um, that patient is actually declared brain dead and we have a legal time of death, then at that point we can consider that patient for organ donation after brain death. And we only offer donation if they don't bring it up after brain death is declared or independent of the decision to want to withdraw support. That's the timing of that conversation. So once someone is declared brain dead, then at that point we can huddle and offer donation to that family. Organ donation after brain death. And Quinn's there, let me just jump in. So it does that doesn't mean that you can't be called until the brain death. It means that you may have been involved for days, but you won't approach the family until after brain death. That is exactly right. So this patient could have been on the unit three or four days, and we've been huddling with you almost daily just to make sure that the family's well supported. Right. And we haven't had that conversation. We're just communicating with each other. Yep. That's a great, great point. So when someone is declared brain dead, the potential organs that can be donated, heart, lung, liver, kidney, pancreas, and intestines. So all eight organs can be donated, and the liver can even be split um, for pediatric patients. Once someone is declared brain dead and we have a legal time of death, then Living Legacy Foundation is now working with the staff, overseeing the clinical management of this patient, and we are allocating the organs and setting an OR time. Once the organs are allocated, we found those found out where those gifts are going to go, and we set in OR time. The family cannot be in the operating room, and they say their final goodbyes on the unit. And that's a really important uh, part piece of this process. Once a family consents to donation, it's one to three days until we get to the operating room. Mm-hmm. So we're on that unit. They can visit as much or as little as they want. They can say their final goodbyes at the beginning of the process or all the way up until the OR time. We go to the operating room on the ventilator. And once the uh, patient is in the OR, all the transplant surgeons are here at the hospital, and uh, the patient is um, prepped, draped, all that stuff. The recovery or procurement begins. We never use the word harvest. We still tend to do that. So we always use the word recovery or procurement, recovery in general. Once recovery begins, depending on what's being donated, it takes about um, two to six hours depending on the recovery. Now, with organ donation after brain death, up until cross-clamp, we haven't had a donor. So if they opened that patient up and they found cancer or something like that, we would have to abort the case. So mm-hmm. they, even if it's an abdominal recovery only, they're going to open the chest and take a really good look. Yep. And so once that's all done, at the time of cross-clamp, we now have a actual organ donor and the recovery begins. Okay. So that's donation after brain death and then donation after cardiac death, a little bit of a shorter time frame. So donation after cardiac death, someone who is not brain dead but has a traumatic brain injury, the, the family has decided to withdraw support, and the process is the same. We've huddled, and then we offer donation to the family. With donation after cardiac death here, there are some places that are doing it. They cannot donate heart, so it's uh, lungs and abdominal organs only. 
Usually it's a little bit shorter uh, time period, but it's still around one to two days uh, for donation after cardiac death as well. So we don't offer donation after cardiac death to the family unless we are certain they're going to die within two hours of extubation. So I'll come uh, onto the unit, Dr. Walpo, and you and I will do an evaluation together. How long have they been vented? Um, are they on pressors? What's their BMI? Um, do they have a cough gag? All that stuff. If we decide that it's not likely they're going to die within two hours, we will not offer donation to that family. If we decide as a team that patient will die, then we offer it. Once they consent, we allocate the organs, set an OR time. Family's very well prepared for this. They actually take a tour of the operating room. We're going to move the withdrawal support from the ICU to the operating room. When we withdraw support in an ICU, what do we do? We get palliative care meds. You're at the bedside. We're supporting the family. We extubate, and they die naturally. We're going to do the exact same thing in the OR with the ICU team. The only difference is we're going to add a recovery in the place where the withdrawal support uh, happens. So let's say it's noon. The patient is settled. The family comes into the operating room. None of the transplant surgeons are involved of the withdrawal support. That would be a conflict of interest. They're out in the um, ante room. Once we extubate and the patient has PEA, V-fibra, asystole, the family leaves the room. At Hopkins, we nationally, we have to wait two to six minutes. At Hopkins, we wait five minutes after the non-pulse style rhythm. The patient is pronounced, and then the transplant surgeons can begin the recovery. Mm-hmm. If the patient didn't die in the operating room, then we would go back to the ICU, continue palliative care, and they would die naturally there. Right. No longer a donor. No longer a donor yeah. at that point. And when, at Hopkins, we always need the attending or the fellow to declare in the operating room. So you're a very... Of course, you should be there because you're supporting the family, sure. but that's what would happen there. Okay. And, of course, different hospitals may have different rules around who exactly can declare, and, and obviously yes. you should go with your own hospital policy on that. Um, okay. And tell me a little, Clint, about how um, how is the matching of uh, people in need of organs and, and donors? Uh, or how are we doing in terms of finding organs for people who need them? So just a, a little bit of data. When I was on the transplant wait list in the late 80s and early 90s, there was only 14 thousand people on the wait list nationally so we're we're we could literally wipe out that wait list fairly quickly at that time we were adding people at a much slower list to the wait list and the wait list just wasn't exploding when medicare and medicaid decided to cover kidney transplants then we went from a few thousand to over a hundred thousand people on the wait list for kidneys alone so it's now consider it's a it's a lot cheaper to pay for a kidney transplant than dialysis so now we have 120 some thousand people on the wait list we have 22 people every day dying waiting for an organ and we're adding someone to the wait list about every 12 minutes. So we have about 14,000 donors a year, and we transplant around 33,000 organs a year from deceased donors, which is amazing. But to put, put all that in perspective, if, we, if everyone who was in the position of being an organ donor, the family said yes, or they were designated, we could transplant over 60,000 organs a year. Mm. So we're leaving around 30,000 organs a year untransplanted because families are saying no. Ultimately, we hope it's not because of myth or misconception, um, and that's why educating the public is so important in this process. So we, um, the, the, the need the need is just so great, and, and we're just not matching that um, with 
the donors we right. have available. Not even close. And do you have any feel for how many organs go un, undonated, not because the family says no, but because they never get asked? In other words, how many families who would be appropriate uh, or their loved one will be an appropriate donor never get asked or get asked too late? So I would say it's pretty rare, at least in some of our hospitals here, but around the country, it's not everyone, every hospital is not created equal mm-hmm. in the process, in the culture of donation, in really the consistency of that process. So we try the best we can to make this uniform in every single hospital, making sure everybody's asked and informed on this um, um, process. But unfortunately, it, it just isn't happening as consistently as it should. We've come a long way, though. We've really improved over the years. Um, at Hopkins, we have about a 98% consent rate. And um, so almost 100% of the people at Hopkins who are potential donors are being offered that. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I think really, and we've touched on this, but one of the key things for those of you out there who are providers, whether you're an attending or a um, or a resident or a trainee who's going to be an attending at some point, a couple of things Clint said that are really crucial. One is if you are leading that team, once you're an attending, you're going to set the tone. That's true of putting gel on your hands before you go in a room, and it's true of the way you ad- approach the organ procurement organization folks and the whole conversation around organ donation. So that's really something that you can control. And if you think about it, and I think what's so powerful here, and I hope other places have people like you, Clint, who who are really just donating your, your life to going around and educating people about this, because when I think of whether to when to call Living Legacy, or I think of how to bring this up with my team, I think about you, and I think, oh, you know, Clint, had a, he had someone who knew about this option, someone who was able to make this donation. This family felt like they were able to give a gift. Clint received this gift. It's a win-win, and it puts a face to a to an issue in a way that I think makes it more real for people and makes people think harder about it than if you're just abstractly thinking about this idea. Too often, the idea of calling living legacy becomes an afterthought. It's, well, we have to care for the patient uh, and the family, and oh yeah, at some point we'll call living legacy. And, and, and unfortunately, that, that's a complete misconception, right? That we, those things aren't separate. Caring for the family, giving them this opportunity is part of caring for the family. We have to realize that that's what it is. And, that, and then the, the other big thing that we've, again, touched on, but I want to emphasize is the mistake that gets made is this idea that if you call Living Legacy, you are broaching a subject with a family that they're not ready for yet, and that's not true. Calling Living Legacy here, and Living Legacy is, of course, again, the Maryland Organ Procurement Organization, so it's not going to be called Living Legacy in other states, but whatever it is, and as you heard Clint say, there's 58 of them, so wherever you are, there's one that's going to be available to you. Calling them gets them involved in a way that is going to help support the family. It does not mean anything is going to be brought up prematurely. So call early. I, it still amazes me how often I bring up calling and am told, oh, it's, it's too early for that. Uh, there's never too early, right? I mean, let, let the organ procurement organization decide if they think it's too early or not, but get them involved early. There's never a downside to that. I would also, uh, 
to and having a physician like Dr. Walpole right now actually verbalize that is is something is a game changer. It's it's something that in your institution you have the ability to completely make change uh, in this process. I will go on to a unit at another hospital and I will hear the relationship with the OPO isn't that good. And uh, what is the OPO doing? And I put that back on you and your unit. What are you doing? So the OPO is very small. We're looking at maybe 10 people to cover 32 hospitals. In Utah, I think it's five people to cover 94 hospitals. So if you aren't proactive and saying, I have a lunch and learn, we need to have the OPO and come and talk about this process. If you aren't um, inviting them to your end-of-life committee, if you're not taking the initiative to change the culture, they don't have the resources to do everything themselves. So when you say or you hear that things aren't going well, I ask you guys, what are you doing about it? Yep, I think that's exactly right. And again, some of this is just a matter of education, right? Mm -hmm. People don't know. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about is stuff that people aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not something, and I think we, you know, we still in our culture, even within healthcare, we have some taboos around kind of end of life and talking about death and, um, and organ donation itself. And in this country, more than some others, there are other countries where uh, everyone's an organ donor unless they opt out. Uh, and of course, in this country, you have to opt in. Um, but we won't debate that here. I think the point is that there are some cultural taboos that we really um, have ingrained, if, even if we've never thought about them. And so you have to break through those. And we, uh, as physicians out there, or as any healthcare provider, or if you're working in an ICU, if you're involved in this process, the more you normalize it, the more you're willing to talk about it, the more lives you can affect in a way that can really be transformative. Yep, that is, that's absolutely it. Clint, anything that you want to say, tips for people out there, anything we haven't covered before we sign off? A couple things. So I will say communication is everything. Moral distress and end of life is, is, uh, as we all know, huge. When families are getting mixed messages and, you know, surgical team or the ICU team or the donation team and we're not communicating with each other, then there's a lot of people caught in the middle and there's a lot of moral distress. Everything around donation, when I take it back and the process doesn't go well, I can take it back to the huddle not occurring, period. Yep. Or the staff not being willing to communicate, period. And I will also say end-of-life conversations just isn't something we're good at. It's not something you're born with. You still have to practice it in simulations with each other, end-of-life with your OPO. If you're not, you can practice putting in 100 central lines because that is a priority. We need to prioritize end-of-life exactly the same way as we prioritize Every clinical thing we do. And even more importantly, what's the last, the only thing that a family is going to remember during that stay? It's going to be that um, interaction they had with you, Dr. Walpo, at end of life. The other thing is, I would say, is with brain death, brain death testing. It's not something that happens a lot in the cardiac ICU or in the Weinberg ICU, but it's equally important to educate your staff on the importance of timely brain death testing, making sure that the staff knows exactly what to do to prepare someone for a patient for brain death testing. What is the timing of the conversations with families surrounding brain death? So just like donation, it's not something we um, as an institution really practice and 
are, we're not consistent with that. Yeah, and that's key. Uh, brain death testing, criteria for brain death, that does come up on anesthesia boards, certainly on critical care boards. So it's uh, yet another reason to know it is because you're going to be tested on it. But a much more compelling reason, of course, as Clint says, is because being able to have those discussions in a timely way, being able to get the testing done when it needs to get done, is going to allow donation in some situations where it might not be done until too late. Mm-hmm. Um, well, great. And I would just echo that end-of-life discussions are not easy. Uh, we do a simulation here with our medical students uh, practicing it. We have simulations for our critical care fellows uh, with uh, Clint's organization. It's really important, as Clint said, to think of it as a skill like any other, in some ways a much more difficult skill. A lot of people get interested in critical care because of the profound difference you can make with families at the end of life. Uh, it was one of the major reasons that I got interested in critical care when I was an intern, and I think that it's an area where developing those skills, feeling like you can make a difference for families is, as you said, Clint, at least as important as being good at whatever it may be, surgery, central lines, uh, putting in an A-line, uh, giving anesthesia in the operating room, uh, being able to help families through what is probably the most difficult time of, of their lives or one of them and being able to make them feel good about the process and potentially being able to offer them a way for their loved one to have an incredible effect on many others for many, many generations to come is just a huge thing to be a part of. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Clint. I really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Dr. Walpo. All right. That was really great. I hope that that was meaningful for folks out there and that you really understood how much of an impact you can have by helping this process happen. Uh, And you see people like Clint and the lives that they've led after getting an organ donation, and it just is is really quite profound. If you have comments, go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave comments that everyone can learn from. Maybe you've received an organ. Maybe you've donated. Maybe your loved one has donated and you want to share your story. We'd really all love to hear that. If you have questions about the process, we can certainly get you in touch with Clint. I'm sure he'd be happy to answer questions or I can post answers for him, but leave those comments so we can all learn. You can also get in touch with me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com, and you can join the mailing list on the website in the upper right-hand corner so you get notifications when a new episode is out and anything else that I send around. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they're looking for something related to anesthesia and critical care. If you'd like to become a supporter of the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Big, huge thanks, as always, to those of you who are already patrons and, of course, to Brian Park for making the fantastic outlines that he makes. You'll see those pop up on some of the episode show notes at ACRAC.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Clint Burns, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.